Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On today's Money Talks, we'll be looking at trade. At its most formal, a crisis at the heart of the World Trade Organization... Countries will start taking enforcement into their own hands and you'll get all sorts of mini trade wars. And it's most informal, the remarkable ingenuity found at the very fringes of society. I went to the biggest and quickest forming refugee camp and what I found was people in difficult situations will find a way to trade. I'm Patrick Lane, one of the digital editors here at The Economist and you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. But first, LVMH, a French luxury goods empire, has secured a deal to buy Tiffany & Co., a celebrated American name, for more than $16 billion. LVMH, owned by Bernard Arnault, said to be Europe's richest man, has been on a bit of a shopping spree. Since 2016, it's already spent more than $12 billion. The acquisition of Tiffany is the largest ever in the luxury goods sector. And Tiffany joins LVMH's stable, which already contains more than 70 brands, including well-known names such as Louis Vuitton, the LV in its name, Dior, Bulgari and Moet Chandon. Stanley Pignal writes about European business, finance and economics for The Economist. And he joins me now from Paris. Hello, Stanley. Hi, Patrick. Well, Stan, what more can you tell us about this deal? Just how important is it? It's a big deal, right? $16 billion will buy you quite a lot of diamonds. It's not transformative for LVMH. It's an empire, as you pointed out, that's worth over $200 billion. But it's a nice addition. The reaction in the market seems to be, you know, there was a sense of inevitability about it nearly. Um, LVMH is always up for buying things. Tiffany probably needs a new owner, and thus the engagement was arranged, as it were. Let's talk about Tiffany & Co. for a little while, because It hasn't been performing as well as it might have done. One of the criticisms made of it is it's kind of stuck in the past, as if it was still the era of Audrey Hepburn playing Holly Golightly. What would LVMH hope to do to improve its prospects? Yeah, you're right. So Tiffany isn't a basket case by any measure. It's a widely recognised, widely admired brand, but it's a slightly fallen angel. As you say, the brand is maybe a little bit old-fashioned. It's very reliant on the U.S., And possibly there's a sense that it's a bit behind on things like digital marketing, which is critically important now for luxury brands. So LVMH haven't said much about uh, what they might want to do, but it's not that hard to guess, not least because LVMH bought a kind of similar company, Bulgari, in 2011. So one thing we know that they're not going to do is luxury is not an industry in which you have traditional synergies 
So you're not going to start seeing Tiffany's watches being sold in Bulgari shops or Louis Vuitton shops. That kind of thing just doesn't fly in luxury. What we would expect LVMH to do is to get the marketing up to scratch, possibly push it up market a bit. Uh, that's what they did with Bulgari. And there's a sense that Tiffany's probably could go a bit more up market, you know, hunt on the same grounds as Cartier, which is a bit posher, and make it a bit edgier. Uh, that's kind of what seems to be lacking at Tiffany. It's not badly run, but it lacks that kind of cutting edge that the people want when they're buying you know, significant piece of um, of bling. The last thing is really kind of the most obvious, which is pushing Tiffany's to Asia. Right now, 44% of its sales are in the Americas. Asia is just over a quarter. And obviously growth is in Asia, notwithstanding the trouble that we're seeing in, in Hong Kong and maybe a bit of a slowdown in China. You really want to push to Asia. And LVMH has the relationships with landlords that you need to be able to accomplish that. And what might it mean for LVMH itself? Does it feel it's not got enough in the jewellery sector in particular, which is the Tiffany speciality? What does adding Tiffany do for the purchaser here? LVMH uh, already has Bulgari. It also has Tag Heuer and uh, Chaumet. So it has some what's known as hard luxury as opposed to soft luxury, which is clothing and handbags and things like that. But it's under one-tenth of its turnover. It's the smallest division. Um, hard luxury is over 20% of the personal luxury market. It's in reasonably good shape. So essentially it rebalances LVMH uh, towards a more balanced uh, division uh, makes it a bit closer to something like Richemont, which is one of its big rivals, which owns Cartier and Van Cleef and Arpels, um, which is a hard luxury uh, specialist and allows it to have a kind of more complete offering for today's billionaire, as it were. This is obviously a very big deal, the biggest ever in the luxury goods sector. LVMH under Arno has been quite acquisitive. Do you see that there are any further deals on the horizon, whether by LVMH or anybody else? The golden rule in luxury is that everything is always not for sale in the luxury world uh, until the day that it's sold. There's always talk of potential acquisitions, potential mergers. Uh, the biggest ones uh, that will have the investment banker salivating would be a merger between Caring and Richemont. Caring is the French rival to LVMH, albeit quite a bit smaller now. They own Gucci, they own Saint Laurent, Balenciaga, but they don't have any real uh, hard luxury. Uh, and Richemont owns Cartier, Van Cleef and Arpels and, and a few other things. So that would be a potential big deal merger. At some point, people were talking about LVMH buying Richemont, but presumably buying Tiffany's is a replacement for that idea. Uh, the other big name which is out there is Chanel, family-owned, very, very successful, uh, but very discreet company. If and when the family wants to sell, there will be a big tussle over that. And then there, there are smaller companies, um, which presumably one day will fall under the ambit of one of the big groups, so like Montclair, for example, that makes posh down jackets. That's been a, a tremendous success story. It's listed now, but it could well fall into somebody's clutches. It's, you know, we're at the end of the economic cycle, the feeling is, and that's the time when luxury deals get done. Presumably, it's something that the investment bankers uh, are spending a lot of time uh, trying to work up deals in. Good talking to you, Stanley. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can read more about this and all the other stories in the business and finance sections of The Economist. Subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. Next, the World Trade Organization, or WTO, is in crisis. On December the 11th, the system which adjudicates in trade disputes when one member of the WTO accuses another of breaching its commitments 
will cease to function. Two of the independent judges on the panel for the WTO's appellate body are at the end of their terms, and the Trump administration is refusing to appoint new members. So in a matter of weeks, there won't be enough judges to hear new cases. I'm joined on the line from Washington by Samaya Keynes, Trade and Globalisation Editor at The Economist. Hello, Samaya. Hello. Can you explain, please, just how serious a moment this is for the WTO? It's pretty serious. The thing that's about to break has been called the crown jewel of the WTO, and so it really does matter. And the way to think about it is it's the way that the system has of solving trade disputes. So just think of the trading system as a sports match. The WTO's dispute settlement system is essentially the referee. So there's this independent referee that decides whether or not one side has broken the rules. What's happening now is that from December 11th, the Trump administration is blocking the appointment of new members of the appellate body, that's sort of the Supreme Court of the trading system or the sort of supreme referee. There won't be enough judges to hear new cases. And so the risk is that without this referee, with this referee disabled, countries will start taking enforcement into their own hands. Rather than sticking to the rules, they'll start lashing out at each other, kicking each other, and you'll get all sorts of mini trade wars. All right, but how did we end up here? Good question. And I spoke to Stephen Vaughan to try to find out. Stephen was the general counsel at the United States Trade Representative until April of this year. So when he was part of the Trump administration, he was he was involved in this policy of, of blocking judges. I put the question to him. There was a dispute settlement process that was agreed to back in the early 90s. And there was a thought that as part of that dispute settlement process, there should be an appellate body to make sure that the dispute settlement panels didn't go too far in any one direction. The appellate body was supposed to issue its decisions within 90 days. The view in America was it would basically be a backstop to make sure that panels didn't make major mistakes. Since that time, The appellate body has basically become its own sort of rules-making body. They issue massive opinions. They fill in gaps in the trade laws. They try to answer questions that the members left open during the negotiations. For roughly 20 years or so, American policymakers of both parties have been warning the rest of the world that this was a problem, that the United States never agreed to this sort of a process, and that it would make support for the appellate body politically unsustainable in the United States. And that's how we got to be where we are. The US has a laundry list of problems with the appellate body. Some of them are procedural, but some of them are just much harder to fix because they're really about the way that the referee, the WTO's appellate body has applied the rules. So it's not like you can just write a new rule to fix the problem. It's about the interpretation. And if you listen to Stephen, this this really does seem to be a matter of principle. I think that you have a situation where for a very, very long time, the Bush administration and the Obama administration warned the rest of the world that the United States did not agree to give up the level of sovereignty that is implied by the type of decisions we've been seeing from the appellate body. The United States views the WTO agreements the same way the United States tends to view most of its international agreements as a sort of contract. We have made a certain set of commitments, but our elected officials cannot bind other elected officials or future elected officials or the U.S. government in terms of policy matters to which we have not agreed. 
Um, that is a very sensitive issue for the United States. Um, we expect our elected officials to be responsible to our voters. We simply cannot be put in a situation whereby we make a decision on a piece of policy that was left open to us and that we feel was clearly left to the members to decide, and the appellate body jumps up and says, no, 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 that's for us to decide. That's the real issue here. So, Maya, do you have any sense that there is a solution to this problem? I really, really hope there is. But when you have a problem with the way that judges have applied the rules, as I said, it's hard to think of of a change to the rules could solve it. I think Stephen might be exaggerating slightly the similarity between what the Trump administration is doing and what previous US governments had been saying. There had been grumbles in the past, but earlier administrations did see the value of the system. They were not blocking the system altogether. And what about disputes that are already going through the system? Can anything be done about those? This is actually fairly contentious because one of the US complaints is that the appellate body judges are hanging around long after their terms have expired. So the judges would say, well, these cases are so complicated and long. We have to do that if we want to give a reasonable opinion on them. And the US says, no, the rules say you have to answer cases in 90 days. Now, there are some cases going through the system right now that have been going on for a very, very long time. Enormous amounts of resources have been poured into them. So if they if they weren't heard, I think a lot of people would be very, very upset. My understanding is that there are a few cases that the appellate body has already started work on, that they will be continued even after the term expires. But there are various cases in the queue, as it were, that they haven't started working on. They won't start working on those cases. And of course, any new cases that come up can be appealed into the void. And therefore, the losing party can can sort of stop a decision it doesn't like. Now, given that other countries are still committed to the dispute settlement system and to the maintenance of the appellate body, is there anything that they can do among themselves, bypassing the Americans to keep the system going? We have seen efforts, for example, from the EU and Canada to try to construct some sort of parallel interim system. They're they're bringing old judges out of retirement and asking them to, to settle their disputes. You could get members who promise not to appeal their disputes. Now, that's all okay. You can do that for a while. Obviously, if you're bringing old judges out of retirement, they don't live forever. But none of this solves the question of how you deal with disputes involving the US, one of the system's most important members. And so you can have a sort of temporary patch, but there is still this big question of what it means to have a dispute settlement system that doesn't involve America. And a partial system is never going to replace the one that they had before. Thank you, Samaya. Thank you. 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And finally, 
In their quest to understand the forces that move markets and decide the fates of millions, economists and policymakers have largely overlooked those who live at the very edges of society. For his book, Extreme Economies, Richard Davies travelled 100,000 miles and interviewed over 500 people. He wanted to find out what those living at the margins can teach us about how economies succeed and fail. Richard is a fellow at the London School of Economics, was economic advisor to the Chancellor of the Exchequer and chair of the Council of Economic Advisers at the Treasury. Before that, he was economics editor here at The Economist. So welcome back, Richard. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to see you. Now, in your travels, which take you all the way from South America to Japan, you selected nine examples of what you call extreme economies. So why did you choose these places? They fall into three categories. The first group of three are places where it's very surprising that an economy exists at all. I wanted to look at resilience. Resilience is a real theme in the book. And these are places where resilience is shown despite all the odds. The second set of places is the sort of mirror image of that. It's places where there should be an incredible economy. And in fact, there's economic failure. And the third set of places are economies that I think are going to define our future. So they're the most extreme examples of demographic change, of inequality, and of technology. What were the aspects that were most sort of telling to you about just how economies can be resilient and survive in the most inauspicious of soil? I literally went to what I saw as the most extreme example of a disaster zone, the biggest and quickest forming refugee camp and America's biggest prison. And what I found was a huge amount of unseen trade. That's a common theme. People in difficult situations will find a way to trade to one another's mutual benefit. That trade was often not the kind of thing that was advised or helped by the authorities. And the really interesting thing in all of them is that in order to make that trade work, in order to lubricate the trade, in all three places they'd come up with either an amazing piece of financial engineering or invented multiple different types of informal currency. So in short, there's a lot of resilience, but it doesn't come from the things we think it comes from. There are several examples that stand out in those chapters, but one that really struck me was the transfer of prepaid cards into dinars yes. in the refugee camp in, yeah. in Jordan via powdered milk. Yeah. Would you like to explain that a little yeah, bit? So Northern Jordan has got two refugee camps I actually discovered. One of them has an employment rate of over 65% and one of them has an employment rate of under 9%. Um, The one with all the employment is there because it's got many, many shops. And the puzzle is, how does it have these shops? Because the only two official shops are two supermarkets. And I was puzzling about this while I was there. And the way the system is supposed to work is you have an electronic card that gives you some credit and you can spend that credit in the supermarket on a list of predetermined items. But speaking to the families, that economy, that designed economy, the kind of constrained economy they were supposed to live in had all three problems a market could have, essentially. It had goods that are missing. It had lots of things that were in surplus. And it also, for the things they did want, the prices were wrong. And they knew that outside the camp, they could get those things much cheaper. And so what they do, very simply, 
They go to the supermarket, buy a high-value good, as light as possible, as durable as possible, and it's the key to Zartary is this powdered milk. It's actually from New Zealand. And they take that milk worth nine dinars to the border of the camp, sell it. In return, they end up with seven dinars. The economy that they are supposed to have is the sort of nine dinar of constrained credit economy. What they end up with is, is the seven dinars a month cash economy, but that gives them complete freedom. And because of that, you have wedding dress shops, pool halls, hundreds of barbers, a complex ecosystem of companies. To what extent do the extreme economies you look at tell us about where the rest of us may be, may be heading? So you looked at places where you've identified that there are trends already well set that actually are going to, going to affect the rest of us. So in terms of the themes in the third section of the book, it's demographic change. It's technology and digitization and it's inequality. I think the new thing is to pick three places where those trends are most acute on the planet and to try to understand what's going on there. And the three you picked were, there's one in Japan, yep. Akita in Japan, yep. uh, which is to look at ageing and Tallinn in Estonia because it's about technological change and Santiago in Chile because of the rise of inequality there. So what did you drag out of those? Broadly, to summarise it, of course, ageing is going to be really, really difficult to manage. But in Akita, which is Japan's most aged prefecture, not an hour goes by without you seeing some way that the ages, the young Japanese, are working and adapting and changing their economy. For example, they are starting to cherish ageing. I met one man, um, Ryu Yanamoto, and he has set up an estate agency called R65. And it's a play on R18, i.e. restricted 18, which is something obviously as a teenager you aspire to becoming 18. And this R65 is an example of people aspiring to become 65 as it's a kind of elevated status. Actually, because of a phenomenon called lonely death, in Japan, it's very difficult sometimes for elderly people to find rental places. But that's an example of somebody tackling that problem head on. And it's a kind of economic capitalist really motivation. When I finished the book, I felt rather pessimistic because all these places had, had some pretty stark problems. So how optimistic do you feel about the future, having been to these extreme places? I ended up feeling both optimistic and pessimistic. I'm pessimistic for the reason of what's going on currently in Santiago. Essentially, what's happened is a growth model which has resulted in sky-high inequality. And the worrying thing is that that precise growth model, which combines urbanisation with the financialization of the economy and privatization, including of things that we don't really have privatized in the UK, such as the education sector, results in very, very stark inequality. And the reason it's worrying is that I think Santiago is simply further down the path that many other economies, including South Africa, many of our most exciting emerging economies, I mean, are following. So that's a key worry. The reason that I'm optimistic, I'll come back to it at the start, is that economists and economics are being really aggressively slammed at the moment. Uh, and they're being slammed, I think, often for good reason. 
And I also think we are talking about the right things. We're talking about demographics. We're talking about inequality. So we don't yet have the right answers. I don't think we yet have the right methodology, but at least we're looking in the right places. Richard, it's been great to talk to you again. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear more from you. Let us know what you think about our podcasts in our survey. Visit economist.com slash podsurvey. I'm Patrick Lane in London. This is The Economist.